Good morning. We're in Genesis chapter 1 today, so turn there if you will, and I will read for us verses 3 through 31. Thanks. Let me go. Let me see. How is it hard to find Genesis 1? I have made it such. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. In fact, you don't even need to read along if you just like to sit and listen to God's word. Take it in through your ears. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and the trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. 
And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus far, God's word. In the summer of 2013, my family was blessed to spend two weeks in England, and the first four days of those couple of weeks were spent in London. Now, uh, there's a lot to see and do in London, and only so much time to see those things, so I made a list of everything that we wanted to see, and then I carefully planned our time, and as you might guess, at the top of the list was the British Museum, because Everything is in the British Museum. Uh, Its permanent collections contain over 8 million pieces that come from uh, every continent and cover human culture from its earliest days until now. So we couldn't see it all. And so I asked Google, Google, if I only have one hour to visit the British Museum, what should I see? And Google dutifully replied, here's his or her answer, whomever Google is. Ground floor, Rosetta Stone, Assyrian lion hunt reliefs, and the Parthenon sculptures. Upper floor, the Lewis Chessmen, the Ox's Treasure, the Royal Game of Ur, the Mummy of Catabet, and Samurai Armor. And then down on the lower floor, the King of Ife, which is a masterpiece of African art. So uh, upon arriving, I think there at Russell Square, we uh, walked across uh, the, the square and into the museum and, and dove right in. Uh, we lingered at the Rosetta Stone because it's the Rosetta Stone. It's the key that unlocked ancient hieroglyphics. And uh, we lingered at the mummy of Catabet because mummies are interesting. And as a former funeral director, I have to say, it was a great embalming job. (laughs) Otherwise, we stopped, we looked, we regarded what was before us, and we moved on. Now, you may wonder, how how do you savor 
what you're looking at? How do you even retain what it is you're seeing? Well, a couple of things. First of all, we took pictures to gaze on later. So I can remember one day I enlarged a picture of the Rosetta Stone and I sat there marveling at its contents and the beauty and the thought of the minds that unlocked uh, its mysteries. And then we picked up all kinds of printed material about where we'd been and what we'd seen, what we had seen, which is a lot clearer once you've seen all these things in person. Well, this morning's sermon is going to be like that sort of trip through the British Museum, as opposed to an in-depth examination of its contents. Further, it's going to be shaped by what's on the page as opposed to what's not on the page. So uh, some of you may wonder, uh, uh, is there a gap between verses 1 and 2? How long were those days of creation? How old is the earth? Uh, what I mean to say by this is we're going to learn this morning uh, what God wants us to know, what's important to him, and that's what's right here on these pages. It may not... It, 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 it may not look at everything we want to know, but we'll certainly learn what God thinks we need to know. Uh, now, this is a good time for a quick sidebar here. Um, to be sure, there are matters in this chapter on which a good, God-loving, Christ-exalting uh, scholars even have differed over the years. So, for instance... Uh, the reformer John Calvin and the blogger Tim Challies both, both believe in a literal six-day creation. While church father Augustine and 20th century icon Carl Henry believe otherwise. But of this you can be certain that they, along with many others, all agree on two things. First, the truth of God's word and the historicity of of it. So just as Christians graciously disagree on eschatology, that is how the world will, will end, I think we should be uh, equally as gracious concerning our views on how it all began. Uh, and I should also add that this and other matters to be gazed on or read about in greater depth uh, uh, can be done according to the directions you'll get from Gracewire this Wednesday. Eric mentioned that last week, and we're pulling together some resources that you can look at to delve into these matters at, at greater depth. So keep your eye uh, tuned to Gracewire this Wednesday when it comes out. So what are we going to be looking at this morning, if not these things? Well, exactly what the sermon title says, God's very good creation, beginning with God himself, who's at the center of these 28 verses, and then his creative acts, which he declared to be good, 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 and then in some, very good. And we're also going to look at the climax of those six days of creation, which um, uh, are the creation of our multiple great-grandparents, the first man and woman. Now, it, it's helpful to consider, I think at least, that... Um, when it comes to the story of redemption, which is the Bible, this is the very first thing that God wants us to know. It's the very first thing. 
So it's foundational to our study of Genesis 1 through 11 and later the entire book. It's foundational to understanding the rest of the Bible. It's foundational to understanding our world and even ourselves. In fact, how we receive this morning's uh, opening chapter of God's story is like hitting a golf ball down a fairway. It's all about trajectory. And those of you that play golf know exactly what I mean. A bad golf shot, even two feet from the tee, is already off course if the trajectory is skewed. Whereas a good golf shot, whether it's two feet off the tee or 200 yards down the fairway, is right on course if the trajectory is straight. So how we see these verses is going to dictate how we see everything else in the Bible. So let's begin by looking at the centerpiece of this chapter, which is not a a something, but a someone, and that is God himself. And to begin, we see that he identifies himself as Elohim, which is the plural of the Hebrew term El, which means God. Because that word means more than one, it bespeaks a plurality within the Godhead, which should not surprise us because last week in verse two, we were already introduced to the Spirit of God. Now in our reading of this passage a few minutes ago, it was fairly apparent that God's name pops up quite a bit. In fact, it appears 33 times in the 28 verses in front of us. And like a pair of grammatical bookends, it props up the entire section by revealing that God is not just a a preeminent being in all this, but he is a powerful creator. So in chapter one, verse one, we see that that God created, and then over here in chapter two, verse two, we see the inverse of that. He created, comma, God. So God is busy, front, end, back, creating, 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 all the way through these six days, just listen, Uh, how he does that. He's artistically inventing. He's thoughtfully speaking. He's chronologically working. He's progressively proceeding. He is decisively naming. He is analytically evaluating. He is graciously blessing. He is poetically describing. And he is satisfactorily approving it in the highest terms. This is why at the end of the Bible, God is praised first as creator before Savior. Revelation 4.11, for you created all things. In fact, when we confess our common faith through the words of the Apostles' Creed, how do we begin? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So we, along with the cosmos, uh, owe God our very existence. And I think it's uh, worth taking a moment to consider what that means. I mean, think about it. God is entirely sovereign over creation. (laughs) He is not subject to it in any way, like the capricious pagan gods who were widely worshipped throughout the world at the time that Genesis came off the press. Elohim betrayed 
the popular view of God back then, he betrays the popular view of God today. And this is why to understand God, we have to do so on his terms. So there were a couple of professors at a Southern University who about six years ago published a book entitled America's Four Gods. And I have all kinds of information here about that book. I'll just sum it up by saying um, that 28% of Americans, according to their research, uh, view God as an authoritative God. 22% view him as a benevolent God. 21 as a critical God. And 24% as a distant God. Now, I'm sure that America's Four Gods is an interesting read, especially since it addresses the predominant way in which men and women and people of color and those who are formally educated view him, something for everybody here in this room. But while these views might be sociologically interesting, they are neither biblically nor theologically helpful because faith comes by Hearing, and hearing not by our word concerning God, what I think of him, how I feel about him on any given day, but by the word of God concerning himself, period. So when God's name comes up here in Genesis 1, what's he saying about himself? What what do we learn about him from what he is doing? And our descriptive survey of creation a moment ago can be summed up as follows. God is at work. He's bringing order in verses three through 31 out of the chaos found in verses one and two. So he's, he's forming the formless and he's filling the void and he's effortlessly speaking all of this into existence. And furthermore, he is definitively declaring that order the, the, the cosmos, to be good. And not in some pragmatic sense, because uh, this does that, or all these things do this for me or for one another. No, he is declaring them good because of who he is. God is good, and as such, he only makes things that are good. So concerning that point, it, it's interesting to note that what God says and does in relationship to what he has said are inextricably linked. Words matter. They matter to God and they should matter to us as well. The, the, The inescapable importance of speech and meaning is hardwired right into our very persons no matter to what lengths we go to try to disengage the two. That's a very popular exercise in our day and age. Well, I didn't really mean that. No, you heard me incorrectly. When the Tigers won the World Series in 1984, uh, players, as they are wont to do after uh, winning such a a titled, scrambled to renegotiate their legally binding contracts. Except the MVP of the series, Alan Trammell. In 1981, Trammell agreed to a seven-year contract, and instead of breaking it after winning the World Series, in 1984, he honored it 
uh, much to the surprise and even horror of the sports world. Trammell said this, I know other players passed me in salary, but I gave the Tigers my word. What we say is an expression of who we are. And Alan Trammell is a bracing example of how that ought to be. So that's the first thing, and the main thing of importance in this chapter, the introduction of a good and a sovereign and a creative God. Now, the next thing to which we want to give our attention is his creative work, and we're going to look at it from three different angles. The first angle being in relation to creation's ordered symmetry. So notice that the, the six days of creation are divided into two complementary sets. What do I mean by complementary sets? Well, take a look. Notice that on day one, God creates light, and on day four, which is the first day of that second set, he creates the light bearers. So uh, the sun and the moon and the stars. On day two, God creates the expanse, while on day five, which is the second day in that second set, God created the inhabitants of the sea and the sky. And then on the third day, he creates land and vegetation, and on the sixth day, which is the third day of that second set, he creates land animals and human beings. Now, Umberto Casuto says, he's a Hebrew scholar, this numerical symmetry, as it were, is the golden thread that binds together all the parts of the section and serves as a convincing proof of its unity. Um, in other words, the, the, the cosmos were not formed in some higgledy-piggledy random sort of a way, but they're an ordered expression of a creative God. Second angle from which we will view creation is a scientific one. Now, what I'm going to say to you is all in 21st century parlance. Uh, There weren't words to really put things uh, in this way at the time the Bible was written, but these things are no less true then as they are now. So, for instance, the tilt of the earth is at 23 degrees. If it was off we would immediately lose all of our seasons. We would eventually be ushered into a new ice age and we would finally lose life altogether. If the moon were just a little closer to the earth, the continents would daily be inundated with water. And if earth and Mars were reversed in their position in the inner solar system, well, things would become very confused. Orbital distances around the sun for each of those planets would continue to vary. Mars would sometimes become, sometime become the second planet revolving around uh, the sun. And if the seemingly inconsequential presence of that little planet Mercury was just done away with altogether, it would send the inner planets uh, into a, a haywire of motion. Uh, words used by Scientific American. In fact, Mars would be catapulted into deep space. So the cosmos were not only laid out in this orderly fashion, but 
each part was placed and set exactly as God wanted it. Third angle from which to view creation is its numerical symbolism. Most apparent number is seven, which is the number of days contained in the entire creation story, and the biblical number of perfection. But notice how God uses this uh, number to accentuate the perfection of his creation. So seven times we read, it was so. Seven times we read, God saw that it was good, yea, very good. 21 times, which is a multiple of seven, we read the word heavens and the word earth. And then 35 times, which is also a multiple of seven, we read the word God. Now, along with that number of perfection, we also uh, pick up the number 10. Uh, 10 is the biblical number of fullness. So 10 times we read, and God said, speaking the extensive and ample abundance of God's spoken work. So all of this labor in its symmetrical, numerical, and scientific exactness was done not with dispassionate precision, not at arm's length, but actually with a high degree of delight. In fact, it's, it's interesting, in, in, in the book of Job, chapter 38, verse 7, God poetically describes his creative act as occurring when the morning stars sang together. It, it's as if creation took place to a soundtrack. C.S. Lewis picks up on that image in The Magician's Nephew where Polly, by way of a ring, has stepped into a yet uncreated Narnia. And she witnesses the lion Aslan beginning to involve himself in his creative acts. And so Lewis picks it up. The lion was pacing to and fro about the empty land and singing his new song. It was softer and more lilting than any song by which he had called up the stars and the sun. A gentle rippling music. And as he walked and sang, the valley grew with green grass. It, it spread out from the lion like a pool. It ran up the sides of the little hills like a wave. Polly was finding the song more and more interesting because she thought she was beginning to see the connection between the music and the things that were happening. When a line of dark firs sprang up along a ridge about 100 yards away, she felt like they were connected with a series of deep and prolonged notes which the lion had sung a second before. And when he burst into a rapid series of lighter notes, she was not surprised to see primroses suddenly appearing in every direction. Thus, with an unspeakable thrill, she felt quite certain that all the things were coming, as she said, out of the lion's head. When you listened to his song, you heard the things that he was making up. When you looked round you, you saw them. This was so exciting that she had no time to be afraid. How wonderful is our God who delightfully and lyrically spoke the world and everything around it and in it 
into existence, a world for which we should give thanks, and not only give thanks, but in which we should delight. Okay, so we've looked at our creator God, we've looked at his uh, symphony of creation, Uh, we'll finally look now at the climax of these six days, which is day six, and the creation of man and woman. Now, I've mentioned this before from the pulpit, that that humans and animals are both day six creatures. So we have a lot in common with our furry friends. Uh, Humans and animals are fundamentally made out of dust, though we'll see next month when uh, Jackson preaches uh, that though animals and man are made from the dust, woman is drawn from man, making her unique in that way and very special. Uh, humans and animals feed in a similar fashion. We reproduce in a similar fashion and with similar blessing. So I think we owe the animals a high degree of allegiance and even affection in our care for them. We have, they have been placed in our care. But despite those day six similarities, there's one glaring way in which we are different from the animals, and that is we are created in God's image. Now, you've all heard that term, but the question is, what does it mean? Well, there are at least five things that we can learn from Genesis 1 that tell us what it means to be made in the image of God. First of all, God communicates with man and woman. About the balance of creation, he speaks about it, or he may speak over it, but to man and woman, he speaks directly to them. Second, God considers man and woman to be equal before himself. Now, that's not to say that man and woman are the same. Equality does not eliminate our differences, especially those that are most obvious, our anatomical and our our chemical differences. Uh, Jim Boyce put it like this, men are superior to women at being men, and women are superior to men at being women. But as persons, man and woman stand on level ground before God. Third, God makes man and woman stewards of his world. He creates man and woman take care of his creation. And as they do, fourth, they become symbols of God's presence in the world. They are his representatives, his uh, vice regents, if you will. Concerning this, uh, Nahum Sarner wrote, this awareness inevitably entails an awesome responsibility and imposes a code of living that conforms to the consciousness of that fact. Uh, This is why murder is a crime. You can't murder an animal. But you can murder someone who is created in the image of God. Derek Kidner puts it like this. Bearing the image of God requires that we take all human beings with infinite seriousness. I'm not entirely sure what all those marches were about yesterday but I do know this, that in some way, shape, and form, it has to do with certain persons who were feeling as if they were being taken less seriously than other humans. 
as precious symbols of God's presence on earth, here is the fifth thing. And note well, God made man and woman unique to any other living creature. Consider this. Plants and trees bear fruit after their kind, right? Fish and animals are created after their kind. But man and woman are uniquely created. Uniquely created. There are no variations among us as there are with trees and plants and fish and fowl. And because we are unique, because we are unique, we are unified. Our common ancestry means that no person, no people, can claim superiority over another. No matter how different we may appear, we all have the same set of multiple great-grandparents. And in that way, we can truly say we are all God's children. Now, before wrapping up here, uh, there is an elephant in the room that we need to address. Um, Eric pointed out last week that uh, Genesis is a book of beginnings. And uh, the first at which we've looked here, God has declared to be good, yea, very good. The, the creation of the cosmos and especially the creation of the human race. But uh, we live in a much different world than the world of Genesis chapter 1. And we'll find out why when we get to Genesis chapter 3, which will be toward the middle and end of next month. But suffice it to to say, these differences between then and now are apparent whenever there's an earthquake, whenever there's a, a fire or a flood, wherever there's disease or drought or famine, and they're most apparent and most appalling in the way that men and women who are regally created in God's image, crowned by him with glory and honor, Psalm 8, 5, granted by him dominion over all creation, Psalm 72, 8, reject his person and pervert that which he made good. I mean, what is evil other than a perversion of that which God originally declared to be good, and as a result, we rain down pain and heartache on ourselves and on one another and infect this world in which we live. In fact, the Apostle Paul provides a representative list of the way we do this in Galatians chapter 5, and if nothing else, this is clear, we are all under indictment. It's why all of us need to observe Sanctity of Life Sunday because we have all desecrated it. So what's our hope? Well, let me just finish by saying this. It's implicit in the verses at which we have looked this morning because while the Spirit moved over that which was formless and void in verses one and two, another member of the Godhead is the one through which it was formed and filled. The author of Hebrews describes him as the one through whom God created the worlds. He, he speaks of himself in the book of Proverbs as being 
There when God drew a circle on the face of the deep, made firm the skies above, established the fountains of the deep, assigned the sea its limit, and marked out the foundations of the earth, Proverbs chapter eight. The apostle Paul informs us that by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, uh, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him, for him, and in him they all hold together. In fact, at the beginning of that section there in Colossians chapter one, we're told that this, this person, this agent, he, this one by uh, through whom all things were made, he is the image of the invisible God. We know him as Jesus, who is uniquely able to redeem what we have ruined. So that we who have been born through the image of the man of dust, wrote Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, might also bear the image of the man of heaven. And be, according to Colossians chapter three, renewed in the image of our creator. As one writer puts it, He who flung the stars out into the unfathomable expanding universe while orchestrating life in the irreducible complexity of cells in your body, he will act on your behalf if you come to him. He he will repair your broken image. He will forgive your rejection of him and your perversion of what he originally created to be good. The writer goes on. He'll turn your night into day with a word. He'll reorder your broken life with a word. He'll bring form out of chaos with a word. It is his specialty. Let's pray. Lord, we do see a a massive difference between the world in which we live and the world of Genesis 1, and we confess that we have had a hand in making things today as they are, and we pray that you would have mercy on us for rejecting you, for perverting your good gifts, and we pray that you would restore us. And for those who do not know a restored image, who are living in the pain of rejection and perversion, may today be a life, a day of new life, of new creation, a new beginning of hope that their personal world would be healed and grow into something new and look forward with us to a world that is recreated and we will enjoy forevermore. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.